Hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. My name is Jillian, and we are so glad you're joining us. Today, Char Broderson continues through our series, Life in His Name, with a message entitled, Faithful Witness in the Face of the World's Hatred. In the past, how have you responded to people when they disagree with you? In today's message, we reflect on the times when Christians have written off the world and its response to them is hatred. But have you ever noticed that the message of God is often rejected because our methods, meaning Christ followers, don't align with the way of Jesus? Ask yourself this, how is your tone and posture when you live your life out for Jesus? Can people find safety and light in you? I know this can raise a gut reaction to defend the gospel, but what does it look like to sit in the tension of loving others while still believing what you believe? God doesn't need us to defend him. He needs you to love others. We believe that if the church were to faithfully take up the way of Jesus in all places and interactions, we would actually see many people drawn to Jesus and experience life in his name. Now that is great news. So last week we looked at the uh, first half of John 15, and this will kind of be a part two of that teaching. Now, we are going through the Gospel of John with this theme, life in his name. And John has given us this kind of filter or lens through which to see his gospel, and he gives it to that, us to that. Wow, words are hard already. Um, in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, where he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Those are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we, I say this every time I teach, but John is not writing an exhaustive biography of the life and works of Jesus, but very specific stories have been put together so that the reader might hear the offer of Jesus again and again and again and might believe in order to experience life in the name of Jesus. And this really is the number one claim of this gospel, that there is only life in the name of Jesus, and that every other thing that we look to or drawn to, um, it is only a whisper or an echo of the life that is truly in Jesus, that He and He alone is the fountain of living waters. And so this gospel offers us opportunities again and again and again to ask ourselves that question, am I experiencing life in the name of Jesus? Now, as we come back to the 15th chapter, I think it's really helpful, again, just for us to recap where we've been we're dropping into the middle of what is called the upper room discourse. And this is Jesus' last major teaching we have recorded, and it's specifically given to his disciples on the night of his betrayal and arrest. And Jesus has already told the disciples that he is going to go away, and he's going to return to the Father, that he is completing his mission to bring life to the world via the cross, the grave, resurrection, it is the completion of his mission, and he has promised the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in his absence who will remind disciples of the words and ways and works of Jesus and will lead them in the way of Jesus 
in order that Jesus' mission to the world will continue through his disciples. Now, Jesus' teaching, we looked at this last week, continues, but its focus changes from the abiding spirit with disciples to disciples abiding in Jesus the vine. It changes from language of works that disciples will do in Jesus' name to fruit that disciples will bear as they abide in Jesus. And as we said last week, this section of John is really such a vital passage for understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how that growth in our discipleship works. We said this last week, but according to this passage, the lifelong task of a disciple of Jesus is not the mission of Jesus. Many times we talk like that, that this is why we're here. You know, as people used to say uh, a while ago, I remember, it was like, how, if I can even remember this, God does not have a church, God has a mission. And I just think, no, God has a church, God has a people. And we're called to be disciples of Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus, as we abide in him, actually, mission flows from that. And we have a saying that we use here at Calvary Costa Mesa, it's part of our vision statement, that we believe that Jesus' formation plus Jesus' community equals mission. And what we mean by that is that as we abide in Jesus, the love of God fills us up, it overflows into the community around us, but then it seeps out into the broader community. It touches people's lives and brings transformation even to them. Jesus' formation plus Jesus' community equals or flows into mission. This is really my conviction. Everything else flows from our identity and relationship to Jesus as his disciples. Because the truth is that God is more concerned that we be with him, that we walk in deep love, friendship, and intimacy with him, becoming more and more like him than anything we do or accomplish for him. And though we might have questions about the gifts that God has given us, the opportunities that God has given us, all of that will come, you know, we'll have clarity on those things as we are simply abiding in Jesus. That will ultimately come from what God is doing within us and how you and I are actually cultivating that work. Now, as we move into the second section of John 15, we can see all the more how important this teaching on abiding in Jesus is in light of what we just read. The world will hate and even persecute disciples because they belong to Jesus. Jesus is mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually preparing disciples for this onslaught of rejection that they will receive from the world as they continue Jesus' mission. There will be some who, rather than actually being touched and transformed by the ways, works, and words of Jesus, will resist and even try to stop Jesus' people in their work of witness and service to the world. So the question is, in these chapters, how are disciples to respond to this kind of rejection from the world? And the answer is simply this. We'll unpack this this morning. Disciples are to abide in Jesus. 
That's how we are to respond to the world. So Jesus begins this section, if the world hates you. Now, I want to stop right there because before we get into the actual heart of this passage, I think we need a few definitions and disclaimers in order to really understand what we're talking about here. So what does John mean by the world? If you've been part of a Christian community or the Christian culture in America for some time, you might assume that what Jesus means is paganism. You might assume what Jesus means is atheism or even places like Hollywood or Las Vegas or New York, kind of these hubs of culture. And these are the worldly places or, you know, kind of a picture of the world that Jesus is talking about. Now, the world in John's gospel, it might include those definitions depending on the specifics. But John's gospel and the book of Acts specifically highlight hate and opposition of Jesus and his mission coming from the religious teachers of Jesus' day. Even at the end of this section, Jesus says all the hatred and persecution that he's talking about, he says, this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason or without cause. This is in reference to the Jewish leaders who are plotting the demise of Jesus. It's interesting to note this because though we might think of, like I said, the world as these specific places or specific people groups, Jesus here is actually talking about religious people. It's interesting, even as it was then, so now, it's often the people who are deeply religious that are the strongest opponents of Jesus and his kingdom. So then what does John actually mean by the world? Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the book of John, says this, in the gospel of John, world is a moral cosmic term for systemic rebellion against God and against God's people in this world. I think here's another helpful definition coming from Kurt Richardson on his commentary on the book of James. He says, the world is the system that is bent on rebellion against God and his kingdom, an evil, organized, earthly system controlled by the power of the evil one, or what the scripture calls Satan or the devil, that has aligned itself against God and his kingdom. So I think we can safely say the world then includes any person, action, idea, or thing that opposes God and his kingdom. Now, I say that on one hand, and yet at the same time, we have to keep in mind, in the Gospel of John, the world is simultaneously against and in rebellion to God and the object of God's great love. It is the recipient of his gift of his beloved son. Remember John 3.16, a verse we probably all know very well. For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that he sent his one-of-a-kind son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The world is simultaneously against God, and yet the recipient of God's great love. And we actually have to hold these two ideas in tension with one another as we read through and apply this gospel. So the world is simultaneously at odds and opposed to God, 
and is the focus of his redemptive work in order to bring his good kingdom to the world. All right, so there we go. So that's what world means, or that's what John means by world. But what about hate? What are we talking about here? Well, hate for John is not just this like explosion of anger, you know, that just kind of happens all of a sudden, as much as it is actions of suppression. It's more the idea of being despised or detested, that the world would gladly just see the Christian community disappear. I appreciate this comment, though, coming from Scott McKnight again as I work through this passage. He says this, words like hatred and assigning massive blocks of people to the doom of the world deserves our respect, but also our care in learning how to understand and use such terms. Why? Why do we need to be careful with terms like the world or terms like hatred coming from the world? Well, I believe because history shows that Christians have many times attributed hatred and the response from the world with their association with Jesus, but in actuality, it has been due to specific relational dynamics and actions that individual Christians, Christian organizations, and churches have employed. So we need to make it very clear that Jesus is talking about his disciples experiencing suspicion from the world, suppression, oppression, or even persecution because they are disciples, because their lives reflect the life of Jesus. They reflect Jesus' way, his words of truth, his works. Remember, even in the story of John, we've already had examples of this. There is the man born blind, and the religious leaders would rather see that man continue in blindness than attribute a miracle to Jesus Christ. They would rather see lame men sitting at the beautiful gate in the book of Acts than attribute miraculous power to the name of Jesus and to this rabble of disciples. Now, I think there are all sorts of ways that Christians are hated and despised by people that have nothing to do with them actually following Jesus. And this isn't just my opinion. History shows. Followers of Jesus have taken all sorts of uh, postures against or in the world, right? There have been times where the church has fleed from the world to hide out so that they would remain unscathed from the world. There are times that Christians have actually fought using violence in the name of Jesus to defend the work of the gospel and to bring about the kingdom of heaven by force. At other times, the church has assimilated into the world to avoid this kind of persecution and rejection, just fitting into the status quo. Now, of course, we could stop and say, are these people really Christians? Are they truly disciples of Jesus? I think that is the question on the table. But it's well known that Gandhi rejected the Christian faith because he was so put off by the sin of segregation that was being practiced by the church. And he wasn't alone. That was in India. But we had segregation here in this country. It was due to this experience that Gandhi later declared things like this, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Or again, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike 
your Christ. Now, there have been times where Christians have written off the world and its response to them as hatred, when in actuality it has been a rejection of our message because our methods and practice, our tone and posture have not aligned with the way of Jesus. It needs to be said that is not what this passage is about. I believe that if the church were to faithfully take up the way of Jesus in all places and interactions, we would actually see many people drawn to Jesus to experience life in his name. You know, Jordan and I, we talk about this often, but we spent, um, you know, each a decade in places. Uh, my city and Jordan City are considered the most secular places in all of North America. And we had this experience again and again that as we got to know people, people who really did not like Christians, uh, in their mind, Christians had a bad reputation, but as we got to know them, they were like, man, I had no idea that you know, Christians were like this, that Christians were so loving or that they were so hospitable or whatever it might be. I had this experience again and again and again and again. And I truly believe that what the world actually needs is for the church to step into this identity as disciples of Jesus through abiding in him and becoming like him. That as we do that, we will put who Jesus is on display and we will be the light of the world. And people will come to Jesus. I truly believe that. Now, in light of this, I believe that we should be careful about throwing terms like world and hatred around flippantly. Oh, that's just the world, man. Oh, you know, the world just hates you. And we're just like labeling people, places. It flattens the true complexity of life. John employs this dichotomous, polar language of black and white. He speaks of life and death, darkness and light, slave and free, which is very much in line with the way the biblical prophets spoke. But most biblical terms are like suitcases. They need to be unpacked rather than banging people over the head with them. That's what we need to do with words like this, we need to tread carefully and thoughtfully so we don't paint whole groups of people in places with this broad brush, casting them off as hopeless and helpless, assigning them to the judgment of the world, lest we find ourselves in the place of Jonah the prophet. Jonah was sent to Nineveh to preach so that they might repent and be restored Jonah wanted to see Nineveh burn. This is not the heart of God. Craig Coyster, in his commentary, The Word of Life, I think he brings all this together again. John's ominous portrayal of the world gives depth to his understanding of the love of God and the work of Jesus. The world in John's gospel is not characterized by soft summer breezes and the graceful light of dawn, by meadows filled with flowers or gentle waves upon the shore. It requires little effort to love a world like that. But in John's gospel, God loves the world that hates him. He gives his son for the world that rejects him. He offers his love to a world estranged from him. 
in order to overcome its hostility and bring the world back into relationship with its creator. This is the heart of God. So when we use terms like the world or hatred, when we read these, church, we need to carefully unpack them so we remember that we live in this tension. So what then do we do and how do we carry ourselves when the world does in fact hate us for Jesus' sake? Well, why does the world hate Jesus to begin with? Well, Jesus tells us, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And again, he says, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet have hated both me and my Father. So listen to what Jesus is saying. It is his works, it's his words, it's his ways that expose. They expose every false way of living. He is the true light that has come into the world. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, the one that lights every human being. And yet because of this exposure, many, rather than coming to the light of Jesus, resist his light. Saul of Tarsus is a perfect example of this. Saul, why are you kicking against the goads, right? Why are you resisting me, Jesus says to him. But the religious leaders of Jesus' days are perfect examples of this. Rather than come to the light, they're resisting Jesus. Earlier in this gospel, John told us this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So because of this exposure to the way, the truth, and the life that are in Jesus, the world responds in hatred to Jesus, despising him and rejecting him and all who faithfully follow him. You know, a current example of how I think we see this being worked out in our time, in our current Western culture, it's getting harder and harder to be in places of leadership or upper management in certain industries and companies if you are a faithful follower of Jesus due to people's rejection many times of Christian teaching on identity, sexuality, even doctrines like marriage. Many of these cases, I don't know if you've followed any of this, there was a situation down in Australia, um, guy was put in the position of, I think, the manager of this football club, I can't remember the details, and I don't watch sports, as you can tell. A while ago, I called it the, um, called the end field when I was talking about football, and somebody came up to me afterwards and like, bro, it's the end zone. I was like, <laughs> I, I know, dang. So, football club in Australia, it was a faithful Christian who was put in this position, but when it was found out that he belonged to a local church 
who affirmed the doctrine of marriage, the doctrine of you know, biblical identity made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. This person was removed. And in many of these cases, and in the case I'm talking about here, it, this person was reported to be so equitable, gracious, kind, fair in all of their dealings. But because they are Christian, because they are a follower of Jesus, they are removed from this position. You know, it used to be that people rejected Christianity because they thought it too moral. But things have radically changed over the last 20 years, and now people consider Christian doctrines on identity, sexuality, and marriage, just to name a few, to be too immoral and dangerous to human relationships and human development. This is the world that we're living in. So for those who have experienced this despising and rejection from others, whether that is family members, close friends, or you are excluded from situations at work, from promotions, or however it might play out, listen, the Lord Jesus who was despised and rejected knows what you feel. He is with you. He understands what you're going through, and his word to you is, keep on abiding in me. Be with me. Spend time in my presence. Derive your strength, encouragement, and comfort from me. I'm reminded of this story uh, written by C.S. Lewis called The Horse and His Boy. Any of you guys familiar with that story? It's one of my favorites of the Chronicles of Narnia. But there's this boy, Shasta, and there's this part in the story where he has just gone through hell and back again. He's been chased by lions. He's been sold into slavery. Just all these terrible, terrible, terrible things have happened to him. And the scene is that he's just completely lost in this dark wood all by himself. There's this thick, thick fog. He can't see anything. And all of a sudden, he feels the breath of a beast on his leg as he's riding his horse through the fog. And this voice begins to speak to him. And finally, the voice says to him, tell me all your sorrows. And Shasta just unloads all that he has been carrying. And it's this beautiful moment when it's Aslan, the lion, begins to say, that was me, and I was there, and I was with you, and I was the one chased you into this place of safety. And he realizes that all along the way, Aslan has been watching over him, protecting him, bringing him to this destined end to do him good. And when I think about situations like this, all that we're going through, the Lord Jesus is with us in the midst of these things. He knows our plight. He knows what it's like to be rejected by his family members, by his people. He understands. And so, church, disciple of Jesus, tell Jesus all your sorrows and allow him to carry those for you. Allow him to walk with you. Now, how should we respond to the world and its hatred and rejection toward us? 
Again, Scott McKnight, I just found this so very helpful and poignant. He says, what do you do when you realize that your neighbors, your fellow workers, your family, your community do not like that you're a follower of Jesus? Or to use Jesus' words, when the world hates you because you are one of his disciples. The temptations are, and maybe you might check this off if you've been here, the temptations are to withdraw and hide, to strike back with snark and social media blasts, to plot a rebellion, to write vendettas against those who don't like you, to write fake emails or invent fraudulent social media accounts. And there are more temptations and you can fill this list out for yourself. But what did Jesus instruct his followers to do when they became enemies of others? Jesus tells us what we are to do in verses 26 through 27 of chapter 15. Listen to this. This was so powerful as I was studying. When the advocate, remember this is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So just as we looked at last week, remember, as the Spirit will abide with disciples, and disciples must abide in Jesus also, so also the Spirit will work in the world to testify, bear witness of Jesus, bringing illumination and conviction to the truth, the beauty and goodness that are in Jesus alone. Disciples, those who are continually abiding in Jesus, also must testify to the truth of Jesus by their words, works, and ways. I think that these words, these verses are incredibly encouraging because I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels that we are going at it alone in our bearing witness to the world. We are not God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is at work in this world. And God's Spirit is not limited in power or scope. He can melt the hardest heart. He can pass through locked doors and reach to the recesses of every soul to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, again, Saul of Tarsus Who would have ever thought that this persecutor of the church, this person who thought, I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. I must resist the name of Jesus and his work. Who would have thought that God had his number? That the Spirit of God was actually at work in Saul, bringing illumination and conviction of who Jesus was. We cannot forget the Spirit of God is at work in the world. We are not alone in our witness of the works, words, and ways of Jesus, and even in our own human limitations. It's not just up to us and our abilities or our opportunities. God is at work in the world. He is at work, and he invites us into that work of witness with him into this partnership with him, bearing witness to the words, works, and ways of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but this has happened to me so many times, where I have met somebody who is far from Jesus, 
a very broken situation, and I have been, you know, anxious about my witness to this person. You know, my consistency in their life, my ability to communicate the gospel to them because I feel that it's all up to me. And I cannot tell you how many times I have found, oh my gosh, this person's aunt is a committed Christian who's been praying for them for 20 years. Like, hello, Charg, you just got here, right? And there are people who've been doing this work long before you were ever here. You guys, God is at work in the world. It is not up to you. But sometimes we, we just feel like it is. We feel like, oh man, I've got to get this word in. And if I don't seal the deal with this person, then there they go. They're lost forever. Their soul into all eternity. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. You think it's up to you? No, of course not. This is God's work to rescue and redeem. And he invites us into that work along with his spirit. But our bearing witness must be faithful to the way of Jesus. You must also testify because you have been with me. Those words are key. You have been with me from the beginning. Our witness must be faithful to the way of Jesus. Michael Gorman, in his little book called Reading Paul, he says this, we cannot respond to the world in anger or retaliation because followers of Jesus are living out the kingdom of God in a world that's still under sin, death and the devil. It makes it very difficult. Injustice will happen to us we will be taken advantage of. We will often be despised and rejected. We live in this tension of the already, the kingdom of God has already come and yet it is not yet. But we do so according to the way of the cross in hope that evil will be resolved by God in the future. Our living cannot violate our nonviolent, self-giving, God-obeying love of the cross, which determines the structure and fabric of our existence day by day. See, it's natural to our human nature to want to fight fire with fire, to respond to rejection with rejection, to react to hatred with even more hatred, but we have been born again. We have been born according to the image of the new human, Jesus Christ. We've been given a new disposition by the Spirit of God to do what is good, right, and true in the way of Jesus. And therefore, as those who are dear children of God, we must reflect that image of God so that others might come to know our God as Father. They might know His grace, His kindness, and patience. We must reflect this in our responses to even our greatest enemies. In order to do this, I think one key way is just to remember God's incredible patience that he has shown towards us. 
Remember last week we were talking about this. Jesus says, abide in me. How do we do that? By abiding in his love. Where is Jesus' great love displayed? It's displayed in the cross. So we do this, testifying in the way of Jesus, by thinking often about God's great love for us. Paul uses this language. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. The New Testament, in fact, constantly highlights the life of Jesus that we are to imitate as disciples. We know that. But it might surprise some of us to know that it is specifically Jesus' nonviolent response to hatred, rejection, and violence that is highlighted, highlighted as a pattern to follow more than any other aspect of his life or ministry. In this way, the Scriptures keep saying, we are to follow Jesus. This specific way. I love this from Craig Hovey, his book, To Share in the Body, a Theology of Martyrdom for Today's Church. He says, the church is elected to responsibility, called to be the church to and for the world, not in order to save it. Not in order to conquer it or even transform it. But to serve it by showing what redeemed human community and culture look like, as modeled by the one whose cultural work led him to the cross. In short, we're sent out to be martyrs, witnesses of the crucified one. Paul says this. He says, we are constantly being given over to death so that the life of Jesus might be put on display through our mortal bodies. Loving our enemy, doing good to all, even evil people, never taking vengeance, responding to violence with nonviolent love, even when it brings suffering. These are not easy, but nor are they options for disciples of Jesus. They are primary character traits of those who claim to follow the crucified God. If we don't respond in the way of Jesus to the world's hatred and rejection, our deeds and actions will unsay what we proclaim about Jesus, about his gospel, about his life-giving, self-sacrificial death for the life of the world. It will undo this claim that there is truly and only life in his name. I wonder if many of our wrong responses to the world are due to fear. You know, there is a common way of thinking in churches in the Western culture that I've found. And it is often driven by fear tactics. Oh, it's the end of the world. Oh, culture's going to hell in a handbasket. We know how the story ends. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and we shall reign on the earth. Flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We know this, and yet we know this, and yet we still respond in fear. We give in to fear tactics again and again and again. 
But if the worst thing that could ever happen in the history of the world, you know what's already happened? The creator, the sustainer, the one whose life is in his name has died, has been judged, and has gone through death and out the other side. He reigns forevermore. The book of Revelation says he has the keys of hell and death. It's finished. The story is already over. We're just waiting for the world to catch up with the kingdom of God. We're waiting for that moment when Christ returns. He touches down and he brings his tangible, physical kingdom to this earth. Church, we cannot forget this. Remember Jesus' words, I have told you these things so that in me you may have shalom. Peace with God, peace within ourselves, peace with others, peace with creation. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart or be of good courage, he says. I have overcome the world. Our future is secure. The kingdom of God is advancing and nothing can stop it eventually filling the whole earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. Take heart. Now, all that we have talked about this morning, about the world and its rejection, its hatred of Jesus and his people and our faithful response, church, this is only possible as we continue to abide in Jesus as we abide in his love, as we, as we looked at last week, make him our personal, intimate friend. As we spend time in his presence, allowing Jesus' love and character to transform us into his image. According to John 15, the lifelong task of a disciple of Jesus is not the mission of Jesus. It's not conflict with the world. The lifelong task of a disciple is our relationship and discipleship to Jesus. Faithful witness will flow from cultivating the presence of Jesus and abiding in Him. Everything else flows from that identity and relationship. Now, as the band comes out, and we close this portion of our gathering, we have the table of the Lord. And we've been talking for the last two weeks about abiding in Jesus, about sticking with him, about walking with him, about you know, abiding in him, but also inviting him to come with us as we go to the places of our world, of our life. Now, Jesus in John chapter 6, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is the one who abides in me. This is one of the most down to earth, physical, tangible ways that we be with Jesus by coming to this table, by remembering through the broken bread his body broken for us. By coming to this table 
and taking of the cup, remembering that it represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It's as if Jesus is looking at each of us and saying, would you come have this meal with me? Would you come and talk with me? I miss our conversations. I miss being with you. Will you come? Will you be with me? And as you leave, will you go with me? That is the invitation to every disciple in this room. But also for those of you who maybe don't know Jesus, you're far from God, but you're curious about life in the name of Jesus, well, this might be the first step you ever make in that direction, to come to this table and to ask Jesus as you take of the bread and take of the cup that you might experience life in his name. We invite you to this table as well. Come, eat, drink, and be thankful.